It snowed again this morning in Connecticut, which made me say, holy moly, gee willigers, gosh darn, maybe something even worse, which I almost said, but I stopped myself. I may not be able to stop myself next time. So this is your obscenity warning. Yeah. Did you rock the boat at his bar mitzvah? Did you have to get the t-shirt that says I rocked the boat at David's bar mitzvah? No, we did more like I danced my pants off and they were scrubs. But all, now that you hear all these f- like slogans, you're like, what were people doing what? at those And why mitzvahs? were they putting that on the butt? <laughs> Hello, J. Crew. This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Stephanie Taylor Swift Butnick. Yes, that is my full legal name. Do you know that the Roman Catholics at their confirmation take a second middle name? I, I took a second middle name upon starting this podcast. <laughs> and senior writer, senior writer, Liel Leibowitz. Middle nameless. Middle nameless. What a tragedy. Jews traditionally are. Taking middle names was a Gentile thing. I think we should have a listener competition to oh, name yes. me. Like the cat that was named Liel. That's right. Liel right. Give me, named after give me Liel your cat. cat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I need a middle name. What does the winner get? <gasps> to name Liel's middle name. <laughs> <laughs> I All think right. that's a big prize. Our Jew of the Week is Tova Mervis, the terrific novelist um, whose new book describes her journey out of orthodoxy. No Gentile this week. No Gentile of the Week. No Gentile. Um, there's no Gentile in the building, right? Well, Paul is a Gentile. But not, I feel like at this point, Paul's Gentile status is coming yeah. into question. It's, it's eroding. Look at it, look at the beard. It's there's, osmosis. A, there's, a lot, there's a lot of Jew on him. Yeah, look at the intellectual mean. Yeah. Uh, he's Italian, right, Paul? You Italian? It's, I mean, Italians are Jews, so there you go. Uh, anyway, what is up? How are you, Stephanie? Guys, I'm really tired. My cat keeps me up all night. It's, like, really, really bad. I imagine it's a little bit like having a child, but, like, one that bites you. One that attacks. When and it doesn't In sleep. the middle of the night. And never grows out of it. Yeah. I, I just, like, so I usually get up at 6 to feed my cat, and then I go back to sleep. Um, but I actually, I always, I go to the bathroom first so he knows that that's actually why I'm waking up and not to feed him, even though he's just bitten me like very nicely to, to wake me up. But I'm just like, you, you go second. <laughs> so the other day I went to feed him and I came back and I looked at my clock and it was 4.30 in the morning. And I was like, no, uh, how did I not realize? And so now I'm like, he's, he's starting to like push it up to 4.30. And so I've been trying to just like deflect him from 4.30 to 6.00 which is basically just an exercise in f- fruitlessness. If, if, I, if I were Ben, <laughs> I would go so Hannibal Lecter on this cat. It's like, Ben, this is delicious dinner. What are we having? He's like, well, Clarice, <laughs> we're having him with a nice bottle of Chianti. But the thing is, it's like, so last night it was terrible, but the night before, he didn't bother me in the morning till six. And I was like, he's cured. We've sleep trained him. And then this morning I was just like, it's four o'clock cat. You gotta leave me alone. You realize, I mean, this is verbatim the conversation people have about sleep training their children. I know. Like verbatim. But the problem is like people with young kids don't actually appreciate when I'm like, oh, I'm, I know exactly how you feel. My cat keeps me up. No, the problem it's apparently is that offensive to people. young kids, murder is not an option. <laughs> That's right. Whereas for you. Well, murder, <laughs> the murder of me is a very, very viable for, for the cat. <laughs> Their Facebook group this week had that amazing picture of the cats in Tel Aviv where there's like a shawarma stand with 10 cats standing around waiting yeah, for drippings. What's the deal with the cats in Tel Aviv? Oh uh, the common wisdom is that the shawarma in Tel Aviv is indeed oh, cats. Oh, don't say that. So, oh, God, that's um, not where could, I was going with that. No, but that, that is how but we like, treat it. Be like, oh, that shawarma. <laughs> meow, there's just a ton of cats good. in Tel Aviv and no one cares. Yes, well, yes. Is it Jerusalem too? Sure. Why is there no Malthusian population reduction? What are they because, eating? Because Meowschwitz was never a thing. <laughs> you remember there was an enterprising Israeli minister who wanted to put the cats on the trains? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. they stopped him. 
Oh, and God. now so everywhere. The Allies stopped him. Yeah. They bombed the tracks. They Never bombed forget. the tracks. Oh my God. To the pound. <laughs> What's up with you, Liel? I am uh, wearing. I'm wearing, wearing Lilla Bean flannel. flannel. I recognize that flannel from the Lilla Bean catalog. I know you did. <laughs> I, Which you read? I religious. forget its name. I do. I do. I know. I the Lilla Bean catalog is your Pirke Avos. It is my Pirke Avos. Be- wisdom. Before the internet was available for all sorts of late night browsing, which to be perfectly frank, is usually me on Brooks Brothers, L.L. Bean, or J. Press. Anyway, um, catalogs, like when I had to go to the toilets 11 at night, you want something to just like read, uh, and there was no laptop to take to the bathroom. I really just brought clothing catalogs. Is that, it's not surprising, but is it crazy? Well, it, is, it is absolutely not surprising. You, I think there is like a pornographic element to oh, style. Yeah. Like you are, you have written a lot about like prep and the way Jews invented preppy style. Like to you, I think, I think there is something deeper and philosophical there. So I, I believe yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. News of the Jews. Uh, quick bite. Paul Nalen, the congressional candidate. Who's <laughs> everyone's favorite. The, the, everyone's favorite vanquished. Where's he from? Wisconsin, Michigan, someplace like that. I forget. We talked about him last week. Um, he uh, thinks the Jews are always out to get him and it's the Jewish conspiracy. You know. What do we do now? What? Right. He posted on Twitter an official campaign statement uh, from his, quote, Semitic liaison, Matt Fisher. Um, and it's basically about the seven-day suspension from Twitter that he got. And uh, so it just raises the question of, like, can one have a Semitic liaison? I think like, we should do the right brilliant. thing. I think we should volunteer. As his Semitic uh, liaison? Uh, Paul Nalen, if you're listening, which I know you are, because <laughs> you are obsessed with us, uh, we will be your Semitic liaison. Totally. We will talk to you about conspiracies. We would... Reveal well, the truth about the banks in Hollywood. The truth Whatever is out there. The we'll truth also be your out. anti-Semitic liaison to just we like help you out with that, that to make sure you got that correct. <laughs> now, and by the way, if you're doing it right, your Semitic and anti-Semitic liaison is the same person. <laughs> I mean, would we be less offended if it was his Jewish liaison? Because that's a, is it. Is it like because the Semitic just sounds so weird? But maybe so he's talking weird. to all Semitic people, yeah. right? Maybe maybe the Middle Eastern Arabs are in on it too, which we would happily stand with them in. You know. Uh, bearing witness to the greatness that is Paul Nalen. With pleasure. Um, in other news of Twitter, uh, what would we do without Twitter? Vice President Michael Pence posted uh, something a few days ago that uh, the, the Jewosphere has absolutely just, we don't know what to do with it. He wrote, <clears throat> a few days ago, Karen and I paid our respects at Yad Vashem to honor the six million Jewish martyrs of the Holocaust, who three years after walking beneath the shadow of death, rose up from the ashes to resurrect themselves to reclaim a Jewish future. Which was weird because the way you honor Jews isn't typically by saying that they were resurrected and rose up from the... I mean, that's kind of a Christian way to talk about us. It seemed a little toned. Is that what it was? We felt it was a little toned up. I, I got to tell you, I have zero problems with that. I think if you're a man of faith, which I, you know, take the vice president to be, you speak in... In your uh, language. In the language, it makes sense to you. And, and you actually do it as a profound expression of of respect and emotional connection because this is the you know the the spiritual thrust to which you most you know profoundly connect and and you you say that as a way to say well i feel this great you know communion with you i i really don't mind that i'm gonna let you finish just kidding this is what I call like fellowshipping by Twitter to Jews. It, it's just a language that makes no sense to Jews. And if you are trying to convey a message theoretically about for Holocaust Remembrance Day, just don't. I mean, he went out of his way to use just really profoundly Christian, really, really profoundly like evangelical Zionist language that would if he knew any actual Jews, he would know that that would make them super uncomfortable. So to me, it's it's him saying like, 
okay, congrats on like, you know, this thing, your, your big day, your Holocaust Remembrance Day. Remember that like there's actually like this theolo- Christian theological thing about Israel that like, I mean, except, to me, it's so deeply uncomfortable. Except I'll say two things and I, I am really finding it very hard to believe that my my role this morning is to defend Mike Pence. But uh, first of all, his senior aide and has been for a very long time is an Orthodox Jew. Oh, yes. Would you say one of his best aides is Jewish? <laughs> for a very, I mean, for a large number of, of years. Um, and And second of all, I mean... Come on now, like someone expresses like deep felt sympathies on Hawks Morley and like we didn't quite like the language such small that you did on that thing. <laughs> such small portions. Like um, if you don't say anything about the Jews on Hawks Morley, it's like could you believe Jeremy Corbyn didn't say anything about the Jews? If you do say something about the Jews, could you believe no, he sounded say- so Christian? He's a Christian. <laughs> How is it supposed to sound? I'm with her. Like, oh my God. I'm I was Steph- so frickled. This is, this is the Mike Pence tweet, right? <laughs> Karen and I were so frickled <laughs> on Holocaust <laughs> Memorial Day. We I were bitch. We plot. That is so anti Semitic. <laughs> it's true. We're a tough crowd, aren't we? Never but, uh, again. And by the way, 98% of all Nobel Prize winners are Jews. <laughs> is that what he's supposed to do? This is why he's a Semitic liaison. Karen, <laughs> it, here's the tweet. Like, Karen and I were sad face, sad face. <laughs> Green face, crying <laughs> yeah. face. You know, there is exactly. this whole diversity coaching, multicultural sensitivity there- training in an industry, and a lot of people make money, often doing really good work, I should say. I've seen some good examples of this. There's some bad examples as well. Coaching, you know, CEOs and, and corporate cultures on how to be more sensitive to women and LGBT people and people of color and whatever. And like, nobody hires the Jewish liaison, but sometimes you need a Semitic liaison. C- well, that's I like ask- David Mike- Litt. When he was here, he was like the, he was, he basically was the Jewish speechwriter. He was the writer. house Jew for Obama's speech for the West Wing and it's like why are we not collecting serious shekels as the Semitic liaisons oh, for people like yeah, yeah. And, anyone listening but but here's here's a here's another question since we're clearly moving towards <laughs> communicating exclusively by emojis are we at the stage <laughs> where we're going to have holocaust emojis I love emojis I think the my limit is holocaust yeah. emojis we That's, found my limit we found here your on limit. the show we found your like, limit Three years, but okay. You know what you need emojis for is for women in Mishpocha magazine because the ultra right Haredi magazine <laughs> has a policy of uh, blotting out the pictures of women because they're women and they might tempt us to want to fornicate with them. This was an interesting story this week. They had a cover uh, which showed a picture from the Holocaust in which one of the people in it, you know, black and white, grainy, you know, middle school educational film strip uh, was was a woman and Lord her, forbid and she was pixelated what does did one of you follow up on this story a little more than I did it was I, I did okay what happened um, here the Israeli magazine yes published a photo per of, their guidelines per their guideline no, no women no women at all and so the American magazine received the files and they were like oh my god <laughs> there are why, how, why did they do that? And there are actual, like, there are photos of women, like, elsewhere in the magazine. In Mishpocha, so yeah. there's clearly not an issue of that. But then, you know, that's the file they had. They ran with it. And then readers were completely incensed, which still goes back to the source that somewhere in Israel, there's a magazine editor is like, I think that if I, uh, if someone sees the photo of this 86-year-old Holocaust survivor, I think it might lead to impure thoughts. P.S. I don't think no, she was a survivor. It was, it was a story. I think it was a story about two twins and they like blurred out the female one. Right. Like, it, was a, uh, it was a photo from the Holocaust. It was like, it, it just, Ugh. it's so. Ugh. Icky, yucky. 
But to me, it's like, don't you always have to think about the fact that the ones coming from is the pictures coming from Israel are going to be different than the ones you publish? Like, I don't know. To me, right. it just feels like we need better staff newsroom's. Right. That's the. I mean, when better when, Slack channels. When you magazine was the publisher of Mishpocha, it was a very different <laughs> magazine. People read Mishpocha for the interviews and the articles. <laughs> now it's just all crass. All right. Well, uh, can the, you imagine, by the way, the editor of Mishpocha in like a, a red silk? Yeah. Coat? Be like, hello. Hello. Is there the Mishpocha Mansion? The, well, you know, I, 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 <laughs> a place in Borough Park where people- They have a grotto, like, but it's a mikvah. That's <laughs> oh, mic drop. Uh, but actually, amazingly, that's not the best piece of news of the Jews of the Week. The best it piece- is it, it is not. The best piece is the uh, Sarah Netanyahu tape. And for this, we must turn to our all things uh, Israeli politics correspondent, Liel, middle name TBD, by our readers, Leibowitz. Okay, what happened here? Uh, well, now, this uh, is another nugget. Uh, our, our listeners will recall that... Recoil. Recoil. <laughs> that uh, two weeks ago, the Netanyahu's uh, were also in the headlines for another uh, recording. I, I wrote somewhere this week, you know, secret recordings for the Netanyahu's are what corgis are to the royal family. Like, there's way too many of them, and right. no one knows what they're good for. <laughs> so after your ear was secretly recorded outside of a strip club saying, bro, give me 400 shekels for this whore, his mother uh, is in the news because in 2009, she, um, she was recorded talking to her publicist. Now, here's the amazing setup. Uh, a newspaper ran a 44-word article about the fact that she was in a fundraiser for her kid's school, and it said um, the prime minister's wife, as part of her duties, has to do public service. So this tape is from the, the story was just she does good work by going to fundraisers, but then they included a tape of what she said at the fundraiser? No, this is a tape of her calling the publicist about the oh, article. So the article and had just been, she does good works. The article was, she does good work. Now, why did that upset her? Let's go to the tape. Listen first, and then we shall translate. I am an educated woman, a psychologist, with both a BA and an MA. That is all. But, says the advisor, the article said in the very first sentence that you are indeed a psychologist. And plus, that was not an appropriate text. It says in the article, the wife of the prime minister must partake in public activity. Why is that? Why is that? This prime minister's wife <laughs> engages in civic service every day in her professional line of work. Oh, <laughs> I cannot take this anymore. So wait a What's second. What's llama? Why? Lama is why. So to be fair. Or unless as a child psychologist, maybe she was referring to the Lama, Lama, Red, Red Pajama series. So to be fair, wait, wait, here's Devil's Advocate, right? By the way, the most terrifying thing in the world is Lama, Lama, Red Pajama written by Sarah Netanyahu. <laughs> yelling it at you. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, here, Devil's Advocate, was she saying, why are they identifying me as just a first lady when I'm in fact a professional? 
No, that's actually a career woman. Is that what you say? Because they actually identified her also as a career woman. They're saying, why don't they a celebrate my achievements by listing every single degree? All my degrees every time I'm written about. Second of all, why don't they realize that my volunteer work isn't civic service? The civic service is the fact that I am a professional working as a child psychologist. Which is demented. It's not your civic service. It is your career. Can you, can you fact, give us like a an American example? If like Melania was not. No, 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 I'm not. <laughs> or, okay, fine, fine. If like Michelle Obama, they ident- would it be like her saying that an article in Vogue about her garden was diminishing her like legal degree? This like, is what if, if is Eleanor the- Roosevelt <laughs> called me like, listen, bitch, <laughs> you know who I am. I'm Eleanor fucking Roosevelt. <laughs> Oh, Lordy. Sarah. Oh, won't you smile for me, Sarah? If you feel like leaving. Our Jewish guest this week is novelist Tova Mervis. Her latest book is a memoir. It's called The Book of Separation. And we are so happy to have you here with us, Tova. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you have this really nice career as a novelist. I would say you are... Is it fair to say you're a leading chronicler of the modern Orthodox world in literary fiction? Is there someone else? I was trying to think about that. I think there are lots of people writing about the modern Orthodox world. Um, Allegra Goodman comes to Allegra mind. Allegra Goodman is the other modern. one I actually meant. Is there who else? Can we think of another who writes good stuff about the, about modern the contemporary Orthodox. modern Orthodox world? Some of Nathan Englander's earlier work touched on the modern Orthodox world I guess that's to right. some degree. As I guess well. that's right. But it's a pretty small niche, and I think that but you do it really brilliantly. And you know, for me. Uh, a new Tova Mervis novel is something to look forward to, and my wife reads her stuff. And now here you are writing this memoir, which basically announces, I've lost my subject matter entirely. <laughs> You've left the modern Orthodox world. And I guess I was curious, um, you know, in addition to being sad, because I wonder what will the next, obviously you'll find other good stuff to write about, but it, it makes me a little afraid that you've given up your source material. But why did you put this pretty painful story in the end, I would say. I mean, I think it ends happily because I assume you're happier now. Yes, you are. Yes. Good. But why did you write about this? I mean, I, I think that... Besides the big money. Oh, big, big, big yes. money. You know how literary, you know, writing is. Uh, days, I but, know, I know. Um, I mean, in some ways I ask myself that question, you know, why not write about it in fiction? Because I do feel like for all that I was writing from within the modern Orthodox world, I was writing about those struggles, those questions of what it means to belong, about the tension between belonging to a community and reaping the pleasure of belonging and then the cost to yourself, the sense of individuality and the the requirements of conformity. And so in some ways, I feel like I was playing out those questions in my fiction. And in writing a memoir, I mean, I did have a, an inclination early on of, oh, I'll just take my story and, and transform it into fiction or in the way that fiction always makes use of something and then is involved in transformation and changing it. But I felt I felt that this somehow needed to be my own story in terms of subject matter. I don't think that we leave our subject matter just because you're no longer part of a community. In some ways, I feel maybe my third novel, Visible City, had less to do with modern orthodox questions. And I don't feel like that was a deliberate decision, a sense of moving away. But I do feel like I will. I'm still interested in exploring questions of belief and belonging, the questions of what we structure our lives around, what things give meaning, how people create a sense of meaning in a complicated world. And so those are the things I'm interested in in a new novel. So I hope I haven't left my subject matter behind. So as I was reading this book, I felt like the subtext was your marriage. And I felt like you were really delicate about, I mean, obviously you have an ex-husband out there. I don't mean your current marriage. Right, <laughs> which, right. I mean, I meant, I mean your ex-husband. You have an ex-husband out there who I think you were being respectful of in a lot of ways. Like I'm sure there's stuff you could have gone into that you didn't. 
around page 87 or whatever, when you were getting married or whenever you had the flashback where you were like anticipating the wedding and you were crying all the time, I thought to myself, well, this isn't good, right? Like this is going to end badly, right? And, and sure enough, it did. And I wondered... If you'd been married to someone and it had been a really successful close marriage and the two of you had really known each other in a way that I gather you feel like you never really did with your husband, and that person had been like a sort of really sort of pious modern Orthodox guy like your ex was, do you think you would have felt more comfortable staying? I think that I would have, I think in certain marriages, there's room to be different, to change and room to say like, I think this, you think this, how can we still make it work? I, I don't have a marriage now in which we are the same. And so I don't think that sameness is required. I don't feel that leaving modern orthodoxy was just that I was unhappy in my marriage. I think that a lot of the tensions in my marriage came from my own sense of living a life that I knew I didn't fully believe in, that sense of, yes, I am doing this, but inwardly there's another self that cannot come out in this marriage or in this community or in this life I've constructed for myself. And so I think they're so braided together. It's hard to disentangle. A lot mm. of people have asked me, was it the religion or was it the marriage? And I, I've tried to disentangle them. I think they were so intertwined, even getting engaged at the age of 22 after dating for 12 weeks. I mean, that would only happen in, in a religious community. At the time, I thought, well... No, they're, they're stupid people in every right. community. I, I, mean, I, thought, I mean, I thought like, what could go wrong? Like, <laughs> I, I know myself. I'm, I'm very mature. I'm 22. I'm a senior in college. How, how else could this end? <laughs> I know now, you know, to laugh at the time. Yeah. And even the fact of crying every day of an engagement, it was yeah, like, like... That wasn't a warning sign? It's amazing what you can... You know, it was my friend said engagement is the hardest part. If you can survive engagement, then you can survive anything. And there, I mean, I think so much of the book is about what we do with those little nagging voices that that creep in and say, yeah. this is concerning. Yeah. But how easy it is sometimes to choose not to listen to them. So you're the author of three novels. Um, your your readers know you from um, Visible City, your most recent, and then before that, The Outside World and The Ladies Auxiliary, which gives a window into Orthodox Jewish life in Memphis. Mm. Do you feel as though you are now reintroducing yourself to your readers in this memoir and showing them a different side of you? I mean, I think whenever you create fiction, there's always a sense of the writer is there. You know, you know that this is the person who wrote it. And I know something about them. And there's the curiosity about the writer. I mean, at readings, you can get the personal question of, is this you? Or in each of my books, there's been sort of the, which one are you character? It feels like a game of hide and seek because yes, of course I am some of the characters or I'm lots of them at any given time, but there's not that sense of one-to-one -one correlation. And then you know, The Strangest of Memoir is saying, oh, yeah, here I am, actually. There, there is a one-to-one -one correlation. At one of my first readings, someone raised her hand and very sheepishly said, can I ask you a personal question? <laughs> I wanted to be like, no. What's left? <laughs> right. Uh, believe me. You know, it was like What do you still need to know, fair game. Yeah. Well, how is your son? You know, what the follow-up? Like, what's happened since then? And so I think there is that sense of, of laying bare yourself. And, you know, it is interesting. A lot of people have said to me, oh, you know, I, I'm not surprised. You know, I read The Ladies Auxiliary and I intuited this. Oh, and God. there's something interesting in that, you know, I, of course, it's there, that sense of questioning. And, you know, I do, I mean, I'm in that mode of the trepidation of a new novel right now where, you know, after in some ways you bring your own story to it, it's harder to say this is not me in, in the next book because everyone knows your story <laughs> already. But I'm trying to just think about like creative freedom and just writing regardless of that sense. It's really interesting because you say, you you know, these novels sort of did chronicle a little bit of your own own questioning through through the characters. And then it feels almost appropriate and, and a good coda to have this memoir where actually you say 
you lay it all bare and you say, like, this is where I am now. So, I mean, to follow your literary career, it actually is sort of a beautiful way to encapsulate your own journey. Right. In so many ways, I feel like writing a book, any kind of book, is like a process of knowing more and more. Like, I don't think I felt like, okay, secretly I'm not this, but I'm going to write the ladies auxiliary and hide that from myself. I think so much of a book is coming to know your own self or coming to explore something. And so when I look back at my three books, I feel like, oh, this is hardly surprising. You know, here it is on the page. And yet in writing it, it didn't feel like that. It felt it felt like grappling. And certainly when I think about The Outside World, my second novel, where I had characters who really run the gamut um, in the Orthodox world from a modern Orthodox family whose son becomes more strictly observant and marries mm-hmm. someone from a more right-wing family. The father in that family always described himself as an observant agnostic and describes the loneliness of standing in shul, feeling that he is the only one to feel this way. And, you know, I, I thought, you know, of course it's a character. It's not me. And yet I, there's always that kernel, that, that question, I think, that gets played out in fiction. So if I may ask you a personal question. No, oh, I've, I've no. got more of this. <laughs> For our listeners who haven't yet read the book, could you tell us a little bit about where you were at the beginning of the book whereas, and, and where you are now? Sure. Well, I, I grew up in a modern Orthodox community in Memphis, Tennessee, which I know many people do not think of as a bastion of modern Orthodoxy. I can but, tell from your Southern accent. Oh, I know. No. It's been gone. Even, I Did used, you have one? I never had a strong one. My grandmother had a very, very strong one. You know, She would leave messages on my answering machine in college, like, hi, Tova, this is Bubby. And my, my friends <laughs> all thought it was hilarious. And then... I never really did. And then I said y'all for like years after, you know, and then that is gone too. But I grew up in this very small, close-knit community. I'm a sixth-generation Memphian. And I spent a year in Israel in a modern Orthodox women's yeshiva. I went to Columbia, New York, and was very active in the modern Orthodox community there. And lived in on the Upper West Side and then lived in Newton, Massachusetts, always part of the sort of left-leaning, liberal, modern Orthodox community. And I think the book really charts the the sort of attempt to stay in that world and then really charts a growing questioning of of looking at questions of belief and belonging about questions of freedom about what it means to come to feel that in order to remain inside your own life you have to shave off parts of yourself that you know don't really believe what you are upholding can i point out that you left one man who didn't get you religiously and ended up with another man who doesn't really get you religiously. I found that really strange. I thought like when you were writing about your now husband, what's his name? <laughs> you don't want to say it's he's in different the book. in the book. Okay. In, the book. <laughs> in the book, he is William. William, right? I thought, and he seems, I mean, he sounds hunky and wonderful and he takes you to Costa Rica. And in my mind, he's a cross between Indiana Jones <laughs> and, and Dr. Was it Doug Ross? Was that the Clooney character on ER? He's like, he marries, he's like, let's go out. We're going to do ethnic food in Costa Rica. And I thought, I'm sure he's great, but I thought, oh my God, she's getting into another marriage with someone who doesn't really get who she is religiously because he's super like nothing, like atheist, like doesn't even, like has discomfort even sitting through ritual. That struck me as an odd decision. I mean, I think that there is that, 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 a fantasy idea, I think, is a fantasy. I'm going to match exactly. You know, when I was dating, when I was 22, there was the idea that you check off which box you are. Are you modern Orthodox? Am I modern Orthodox liberal? Am I modern Orthodox yeshivish? You know, that I'm going to match someone exactly. And I, I did. I, when I got married, when I, you know, I had just turned 23, we were exactly the same, we said. I and mean, it was sort of this pleasure of feeling that I had found someone who was so similar to me. Our parents went to medical school together. They were the same kind of doctor. We had so many friends who were the same. My parents claimed 
claim they were at his breast. That has been <laughs> debated by his parents, oh, but that was sort of right. This claim, but it, that was disputed that, that they were not, in fact, invited to the breast. But uh-huh. that was sort of the the climate in which we were dating. That that we how nice it was that we were the same. It felt like preordained. It's about preordained, and and there was the promise that if you are the same, everything will be fine from here because you will, of course, remain the same. And I think what you know what this taught me, my experience taught me, is that we don't remain the same. Certainly not when we're twenty two. We don't remain the person we are and that so much of life for better or worse is about changing and we don't always change you know people say oh you'll change in the same direction and i feel like well, what if you don't like that is not preordained do you wish sometimes that quote william uh were more open to ritual which you still i think find some meaning in mm-hmm. i mean i think would it be easier would it be simpler if he were more similar to me of course if you know it would be simpler if i could have someone who was the same I think what I value so much now is the feeling that I can be who I am mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I can allow someone to be who they are. And there are times I can say, I know you don't want to come to this. Can you come for me? Can mm-hmm. you do it for me? And to have that experience without the feeling that I need to make someone believe. I, th- I think the quality I value most in my marriage is that sense of sh- sharing even when we're different or mm-hmm. that sense of two people who are different coming together, not where one person has to override the other or one person has to make the other be like them in order to be together, but a feeling of an awareness of the difference, an awareness of the complications that do arise from them. And there are, I mean, we, I think in any blended family, we each have three kids. And so we have this sense of a blended family with all different, you know, sometimes I look around the table and think we have like the Jewish world, you know, and every issue that could come up right here at our table. But I think that is part of love is questioning how do we deal with difference? How do we, I mean, I think the whole experience of marriage is not one of we are the same, so let's go forth. It's how do I deal with the fact that I am in constant encounter with someone who is not me mm-hmm. and I want closeness and connection and feel love even when the person is different than who I am. So as a father of many, let me ask you, your kids are in different, are spiritually different, right? Like one of them is more engaged with it in the book anyway, but at the end of the book, one of your sons is feels more connection to, to Jewish practice than another. Um, any any tips for negotiating that? Right. I mean, it's, I think part of, I think I've learned so much as a parent from the experience. My oldest son is about identifying as Orthodox. He's actually spending a year in yeshiva in Israel right now. Um, my middle son is in ninth grade at a pluralist Jewish high school in Boston. And I've also have a 10-year-old daughter now. And they're all different. And I mean, I think so much of the pain of parenting or the lesson of parenting is that we don't get to choose who our kids are. We don't get to decide what they believe. And I feel that my job is to to talk to them about what's important to me and to be honest and authentic about it, to not to feel that I'm performing something for them or try. I don't think I could get away with it with them, even if I tried to do that, but to accept that our kids go in different directions. And it's not like, oh, if you leave, then that happens to you. It happens even if you stay. I mean, I look at my parents who raised us all in a modern Orthodox family where everyone was very similar. And my older brother is part of a Breslover community, and there's me, and my younger sister is part of a modern Orthodox community. And my middle son, one who loves everything sports, and you know, I sort of explaining to him the family dynamics, and he said, "Oh, I guess your parents feel like they're one for three, you know." And, and you know that sense of like you're batting three thirty three, exactly. And so you know the family thought that was a pretty good batting average. Yeah, she was not that. that bothered by it. But that question of you, even if you raise your kids to be the same, ultimately they do become adults, and they do get to choose what they will so who, believe. So who are your parents more? 
were freaked out by the Breslover or you? I <laughs> know it's a good question. I mean, I I would play that in my mind always. You know, yeah. which one of us? Which well, one of at us? least I'm not dancing in Uman. Right. right. Which one of yeah. us is you know is so called worse? Liel and, and I have thought about going Breslover. By the way, like you, if we ever don't show up one day, it's because we've gone Breslover. You should go visit my brother. In, There's in a very spot. good chance He'll of that. Okay. Yep. He will definitely hook you up. Yeah. Tova, so where can we find you? Where can we follow you? Where can we read you? In Newton. <laughs> you can find me in Newton. <laughs> Early drop off. The, corner, the pizza around the corner mm-hmm. in Newton. Um, I am. I have a website, tovamervis.com. I'm on Facebook occasionally, and I have decided that I am never on Twitter again. Oh, very good. Bless you. Bless you. Yeah. Tova Mervis, bless you. That is a religiously you. correct <laughs> the, book of, <laughs> the Book of Separation <laughs> is the best memoir I've read this year. Thank you. And I wait, in the past 12 months. We're only in January. I want to okay. say in the past 12 months. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Toba. Thank you. Thank you so much. Breaking up is hard to do. Don't take your love away from me. Don't you leave my heart in misery. If you go, then I'll be blue. Cause breaking up is hard to do. We have some live shows coming up. Uh, the one that we want you to think about now, the one that we want you to put a pin in is March 21st at the JCC of Manhattan. We are working on some top shelf guests for that well, one. Spring Equinox Our Festival. Yeah. Guests will include Vice President Mike Pence. Mike Pence uh, and his Semitic liaison. Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> That's right. Jerry and Se- the Rolling Stones special <laughs> musical guest, Kendrick Lamar. Kendrick Lamar. That's right. So, you know, we we're, we think there's an eighty percent chance we're going to get all those people. Yeah, so you might as yes. well buy your ticket now because you know. Um, all right, uh, let's go to the mailbox. The listener line brought in a couple really choice, really really choice letters this week. Let's uh, let's listen to the first one. Hey, this is Benji Braun from Washington, D.C. New to the podcast and just heard your discussion of uh, names and acceptable names of Jews. I want to tell you my story. My daughter is named after my wife's grandmother of blessed memory, whose name was Adrienne Fifi, middle name Fifi, and we kept that for her, um, which I think is a great, cute name for a daughter, and it's nice to name them after someone. Um, but in Hebrew, her Hebrew name is Aderet Fega. Um, Adrian Fifi, the original, her name was Yeda Fega, and my wife was at first very insistent that her name be Yeda Fega. Um, but I think for one of the few times in our relationship, I said that it was that I would never name my daughter that because Shalom, my daughter would someday become from and start going by her Hebrew name, and I would never have a daughter named Yetta. So I was able to convince her to have the name Adaret instead, which I thought was much more modern and beautiful as well. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. So, Adrian Fifi. <laughs> I love that name so much. We need more Fifis in the world. We do need more Fifis. I hope she goes by her middle name. Fifi. Yeah, A yeah. Fifi. Uh, my mother had this thing when she found out she was having a daughter because, you know, she had three boys. Then years later, a girl that she liked Mia Pia Tia. She was like, let's let's go with Mia Pia or Tia. And the rest of us had to sort of sit her down, including my dad. I like, like Mia Oppenheimer. We're, just, we're not going with Mia Pia, Pia or Tia. Pia, I like that. Pia Oppenheimer. Would Pia have been Oppenheimer. Much, much, but I, I, I love uh, I love this 
male for so many reasons. <laughs> Most I was like, oh, God forbid, you know, she may become an observant Jew. <laughs> be the that, worst thing in the world. But I feel like no one actually, that's a very smart thing to think that like if there was a point in your life when you do start going right. by your he- Hebrew name. Yetta. Although I don't see, you know, I don't see what's so wrong with Yetta. This is this is another opportunity to bring uh, back the thing that Yetta Fega uh, is not really a Hebrew name, but I do love Adair. Yeah, yeah, is Yetta and Fega both Yiddish? Yiddish. Correct. Yiddish. Uh, Whatever. Is a very very beautiful. I love that. Name. What does it mean? It means a a, a cloak of magnificence. I, uh, that translation Yetta? here is very poor. No, no Adair. 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 Oh, Adair. Adair. Yeah. I love yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, we're we're all we we give a hacksher. We to, should just all start going by our Hebrew names. To Fifi, Adrian Fifi, especially me. All right. Liel. That'd be so funny if I did. <laughs> Wild. Liel needs a Hebrew middle name. What is your Hebrew name? Well, I, I wasn't I given this. one. I wasn't given one. Um, so, oh my God. No, no, no. So I've, I've basically- He's fine. I took my grandfather's. So his family, he was Walter, but his, his parents called him. So his older, he had an elder, elder sister. He was one of eight kids who made sure that they all had- she took it on herself to make sure they all had English names uh, on their birth certificate. So he was Walter and he had a brother, Henry, and a brother, Sydney. And But um, to his parents, he was always Chaim. So I just at one point was like, okay, you want to call me up for an Aliyah? I'm Chaim. Okay, so I you're Chaim that. Oppenheimer. Chaim. And you, Cliff is my brother-in-law's Chaim. I and love you that. would be? Chava Rachel. Chava Rachel. You have to say it like that. Chava Rachel. Chava Rachel. Chava Rachel. But when I took a Yiddish class at the Workman's Circle, um, shouts to Kolya, the teacher, I was Chava Fear because I was the fourth Chava in the class. Chava so like, fear. I think it must have been, I guess I was far younger than I was in grad school By than the way, all the other people in the class, but it must have been like a generation. Chava Fear sounds like the best Yiddish remake of Cape Fear with Robert De Niro ever made. <laughs> All right, that you movie know, is Cape so fear. scary. Prepare for Chava fear. I'm gonna be like underneath your car. <laughs> yeah, yelling with at tattoos. you in Yiddish. With okay. Yiddish tattoos on your back. <laughs> Here's our second letter of the week, second and last letter, and this is this is really really good. I, this is like a really profound and important letter, and we're gonna we're gonna help this guy. Hi, Orthodox. So my girlfriend is choosing Judaism at a conservative shul, and my lapsed Catholic family is mildly confused about the implications of this for our relationship. My father, who equates strict observance with fanaticism, has been projecting his own spiritual baggage onto her in passive-aggressive jokes that are getting worse. In just a few months, he's gone from saying that religion is good in moderation to Judaism is a religion that has existed for too long. We are expecting pushback, but not from someone who had wholeheartedly welcomed her into the family until this conversion began to look serious. Do you have any advice for navigating this? Oi, your, your father is now saying about your potential future wife and her new religion, Judaism has existed for too long. Forget your potential new wife. <laughs> your father is now saying that Judaism has existed yeah. for too long. So basically you're dating someone who's undergoing the conversion process has revealed your father to be a raging anti-Semite. Not raging, low-key. 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 Progressive. What? It's funny because I feel like most religions try to fight for who's been around the longest. Like that's actually usually a good thing. Right. Right. We've been around too long. What? Wh- how does he negotiate? Let's play family therapist here. How can he negotiate this with his with his special friend and his father? You have to have watched this movie in, in public school here, in which a teacher says, "You know, now we'll do a social experiment, and you know, you will divide you into classes." I think it's the Stanford Prison Experiment. It, no, I it's think. like it's called the Wave or something okay. like that, yeah. right? Okay. And then at the end, it's like, "Okay, meet your leader," and then he plays the tape of Hitler. <laughs> Do, do you know, do you know this, okay, this after-school special? It didn't go quite like that at the Loomis Chafee School, but uh, I, I, I think you should do something along these lines. <laughs> I just start greeting your father in a heavy German accent. <laughs> right. I Be mean, like, good morning. Good morning, mein, mein Vater. Yeah. 
Instead of father, may I call you my fear? <laughs> the thing that the, the advice that I have would be to to you're you're on the side of your of your of your girlfriend of this person who you love and and you're it sounds it's amazing that you're so supportive of her choice and her conversion and to me it reveals a lot about you because you could say like oh you know now I'm sort of feeling weird about her conversion because my fan like you actually are having to what to me is the good yeah, boyfriend instinct which is to say like heart. how do I protect this person yeah. I love yeah from this person I'm I mean, related I, to it's 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 unfortunate though I think that it's I think that I think that this shows is like. The idea of just sort of like casually anti-Jewish sentiment is something a lot of people have. And I'm never the person saying that, but it 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 could pop up even where you least expect yeah, it. Yeah, like if she were getting really into Lutheranism, your dad probably wouldn't. He wouldn't be like, Lutheranism has been around two, 600 years Fuck is those too people. much. Um, so, and they're mild-mannered. And they're mild-mannered. NPR listening ways. Um, I, no, here's some real family dynamics wisdom. Maybe my sister-in-law who does couples counseling, maybe maybe Jessica should should call in, give us a voicemail at some point for advice for um, for you. But um, a little from from what I know as an amateur, as a 43-year-old amateur, uh, you, you, you got to be all her. I mean, this is as you go on in life and especially if you guys marry, there will be times when it's like, are you on team spouse or team parents? And you have to be on team spouse. And the, the sooner you just kind of double down on that, the better. But it sounds like I agree with Stephanie, your instincts are all right. And You'll be the righteous among the nations in your, in your <laughs> you family. You'll be a righteous Gentile. He will tell you. <laughs> You'll be a righteous Gentile. We will get a tree for you in, in Israel. Um, yeah, and, and know that there's a, a vast uh, Jewish state, a well-armed Jewish state, always there to protect you. That's right. Whenever you need it, man. That's right. We're here for you. We appreciate um, the love. That's right. That's right. You There will always be a country, right, if he marries her. This is going very well for you, sir. Yeah. If your father gets to be too much. I think, in fact, this is what you should do. Every time he starts saying like things like Judaism is just too long, just be like, well, you know, in, in this accent, <laughs> well, you know, uh, we have the weapon now. I think the answer is actually you need to convert yeah, as yes, well. Right. <laughs> you could really mess with your dad now. Like, like, yes, that's exactly right. It's been solved. Uh, listen, the Facebook group, I just want to say a brief synopsis of the amazing stuff that's going on this week. Okay. We had one post based on our live show episode, which went up on Monday. <laughs> on the question of, is the term actress acceptable? And Danielle Ifshin posted on that, and that was really interesting. Darren Garnick posted an amazing photo about Israel's stray cat population. Uh, Molly Ye asked, what's the proper emoji for, for Klemt? Way in. Way in. And the Facebook thread of the week, Michael David Faccini, one of our great, you know, J. Crew tribesmen, <clears throat> wrote this. Is there a particular Jewish relationship with Diet Dr. Pepper, or is this all coincidence? <laughs> In several from households and events I've gone to, this was the beverage of choice, i.e. it was there instead of Coke. Our local kosher restaurant also has it on the fountain, but has Mr. Pibb instead of regular Dr. Pepper. Website says regular is kosher, so I don't think it's related to kashrut. And then there's this very long thread about Mr. Pibb versus Dr. Pepper. I mean, this is, this is a great, uh, you know, the, the great joke. It's like, you know, Mr. Pibb, like, what happened, man? Like, what'd you have to drop out of grad school? Could have been a doctor. <laughs> <Could've been> a doctor. <laughs> so, I mean, if this is something you have feelings on, well, there is a Facebook I will weigh you. in and say that I don't think I really knew about Diet Dr. Pepper or DDP until I got to college, which is where I also met Gentiles. So, like, to me, I've always sort of put them in the same category. But, like, Interesting. it's no Dr. Brown's. It's no Dr. It's no Cell Ray. I didn't even know. Somebody put Cell Ray. I've seen Cell Ray someplace. Oh, Cell Ray. It's Cell Ray. I don't even know. Josh Cross, our, our new producer, is like, 
given the big thumbs up to Selray. Dr. Brown. Selray's a classic. Even if you don't like it, you have to respect it. Sounds like a sports car. Dr. Brown is the actual doctor. Yeah, yeah. That's the MD. (laughs) Dr. Pepper's like a Dr. Pepper is like like a PhD, you know. (laughs) To join in the conversation, go to our Facebook group. It's all kinds of fun. It's over 2,000 people strong now. We think they're all people. There might be a bot or two in there, but I think they're all people. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your free podcast. If you want to send us uh, feedback, write to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or leave us a voicemail at 914-570-4869. That's 914-570-4869. I think we're at Mazel Tov time. We are. Are we? Uh, Leo, have you a Mazel Tov this week? Uh, I have a Mazel Tov to a uh, dear friend and former guest, Stacy Berman. Uh, the trainer. You may remember the trainer, the oh, yeah. shaman, yes. the doctor, yes. uh, the healer, yes. who has a new podcast called The Naked Podcast, which she and her co-host, in fact, host in the nude to talk about bodies and feelings and the connections between them uh, and it's wonderful it's quite and a live should, show you should listen to it <laughs> that is a live show we will never is do is it just mind you remind you too much of your quicker cam? that's exactly right <laughs> kind of how do we know they're doing it in the nude uh, I think there are photos on, on the Facebook page oh my god if, if you're that kind of person oh my god Stephanie my mother top, top that I, I mean <laughs> wow um, Tablet is a new intern and I'm so excited his name is Simonis Somek and he is from NYU grad school and he's great and I'm just very excited to have him around and so mazel tov to him on, on, on getting that coveted tablet internship and spot. you will read a lot more on the wonderful Italian Jewish community thanks to him yeah he's thanks. amazing he's from Turin he's lived in it I mean he's so that's how you say his first name which is spelled Simone 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 all right. As for me, I have a mazel tov to my fellow committee members. I'm on a very interesting search committee. We're looking for the new Yale senior rabbi and an executive director for the the Hillel. There's a a big, you know, uh, you know, hiring wave going on, and I was put on that committee. And we had a meeting last night, and it's like this amazingly interesting group of people. And it's a, you know, it's tough being on a committee together, and everyone's handling it with such aplomb, except me. Um, I'm terrible on committees, but. Um, but I just want to give a mazel tov to them for taking this on. And, you know, the, the hourly pay is is $0 an hour. And so, I don't is know. Is there it's food like, at least? But there was food. There were brown, Last night there were brownies. Uh, fresca? or Is that the drink that's not quite Sprite? Yes, yeah. but that's not food. I believe like, there were brownies, cookies, and fresca. No, that's just the, like refreshments. That's not sandwiches. It's no, food. I think there will be meals at it's some point. It's weird that there you're not be. good on committees. Do you not play well with others? I throw tantrums on committees. Well, this is this goes very deep, but I always assume the little child... I'm never the chair of the committee, and I always relate to the chair as like an evil parent figure, and I play, I throw tantrums. I think there's something more than that. I, I yeah. think that you actually really misunderstand the profound like sense of committees in which you care. That's a very big problem. You can't <laughs> go into a committee caring about the thing that the committee is there to solve, because if you do, it's going to be a disaster. Oh, Next no, no. temperature, you know? demand some real food, demand some Dr. Pepper, That's right. demand Diet. some Dr. Browns. Dr. Browns. Okay. And finally, a big mazel tov from, uh, from us. From all three of us, I think I can speak for all of us and say a big mazel tov to uh, to two people. First, uh, to Alyssa Goldstein, who has who has been our producer for um, as long as I can remember. It wasn't all of the time, but it's you know we've been here two and a half years, and it's been a majority of the time, and um, has really just informed the show in every possible way. Has has shepherded us and guided us and saved us <laughs> from ourselves, and. Um, She's 
leaving Tablet and going home to Australia for a couple of months, and then she's going to be traveling for a time and hopefully appearing in our pages and maybe even sending some contributions to the show uh, from out in the in the in the field beyond the Hudson River. Uh, yeah, we're not letting letting go of her. Completely. Yeah, so we are extremely sad, but also excited because when you when you stop producing Unorthodox, you become a contributor to Unorthodox. <laughs> basically, um, this is also uh, the right moment to say that she is um, being replaced on staff by the unimprovably named Joshua Cross. Cro- yeah. Cross with a K. It's good. It didn't even occur to me till we were like down the road of Hira Gibb that we've we've basically found someone with the most Christian name imaginable. Um, he, well, at least it, in that crisscross. That he, would be super Christian. That would be super Christian. You know Chris Cross, right? Yeah, that was a joke that oh, I made. I got knowing it. that that was a per- knowing real person. Knowing that it was a hip hop group, which is interesting because he also uh, has produced a hip hop podcast called The Cypher and has been a stay-at-home dad and a student and a working professional in the finance industry. And, yes, right, Josh? Yeah. And he's, he's just a man of many talents and we're excited that he's bringing his talents uh, to us. And I'm sure he would take offense with you calling Crisscross a hip hop group, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to say hi to him, if you want to welcome him on board, write to him at jcross at tabletmag.com, cross with a K, and just say like, give him some advice. Tell him like how to how to handle us, how to Be make- Be like, you know what I really hate <laughs> when Liel says- Yeah. He is, he is now, he is now our boss. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnick. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Alyssa Goldstein and the brand new Joshua Cross and Shira Talushkin with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton, who has a new triple CD coming out. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Aaron Polanski from up in Canada. If you'd like your rabbi to offer rabbinic supervision, write to me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com. We record at Argo Studios, which is on the 12th floor. We're proud to be part of Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>